Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Well, welcome everybody back here to another episode of State of Sport Management. I'm really excited for this topic. Um, there's, we are going to talk really about how to juggle different and various projects all at the same time, because I think we all enter into a doc program. We try to come up with that really, really good idea. We do. We start that. And then one of your colleagues has a really good idea and they want you to join in. And then your doc advisor wants you to do this for, for their project. And then you end up going to a conference presentation and you get blown away with an idea, and now you want to do that one all at the same time. And now you have four projects that you're trying to figure out a way to do them all at the same time, even though you haven't actually done or completed one. And that's a totally normal experience. And so I really want to make sure I brought in someone that has experience and is kind of well-versed in the field of having to juggle these various projects and also having to juggle various co-authors. And I've heard great things about our guest here Dr. Matt Katz, who's at University of Massachusetts, and I think he would be a great person to bring in. So, Matt, how's it going today? Oh, pretty good. Uh, semester's winding down, um, which is a, a, a nice feeling these days to have a little less grading and maybe a little less, little less time on Zoom coming up. <laughs> as we're doing this over Zoom, as of we Of course, speak. of course. Um, and just for the listeners out there, because I don't know when this will get posted, but we're recording this on December 4th. And I think for a lot of schools, the fall semester kind of got shaved off a little bit at the end. So I think a lot of people right now are in that throes of either this is finals week or maybe even next week is finals week. But either way, we're we're kind of wrapping up a, a, a closing window here of when things are actually going to start finishing up. But I had Matt come in here today to talk a lot about projects. So we're going to talk about handling multiple research projects. Now, at first we talked about a timeline on that and I first brought up December, 2019, but he brought, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And I agree with COVID. I think everyone's schedule is very different and I've seen Matt at various conferences. He has a very good uh, pandemic beard going right now. That is an excellent <laughs> look. But we decided to kind of back up a little bit further, and we are going to focus on, I believe, what is it, uh, May 2019. So he was able to write down all the projects he essentially were starting or in the throes of doing at that time. So he's going to kind of talk us through each of those. So Matt, kind of, let's kind of go back to that May 2019 and kind of talk about all the various projects you were working on at that time. Yeah. Um... Thanks, Matt. First, thank, thanks for having me. I'm hap happy to be here and excited for this, this topic in particular. Uh, so for our, our listeners, uh, I have a whiteboard in my office. I think many of us probably have a whiteboard that we imagine will help us, will help keep us organized, but really turns into, uh, I don't know, my kids color on it and crazy ideas get written on it as much as meaningful research ideas. <laughs> Um, but I, I had a picture of, of my whiteboard from last summer. So on it, uh, I, I had three columns. I had a column for, for papers that were in review, for projects that were in progress, uh, and then for just ideas that I had, uh, which, which sort of cover a variety of different things. But um, the, the picture I sent Matt had four papers in review, and it had seven papers uh, in, in progress at various stages, and then it had about uh, what's that? Three, six, nine, eleven different ideas. Um, so that's sort of where where I was when this picture was taken. Um, 
and you know a variety of diff different ideas, different co-authors, different methodologies on these studies. Um, but that was sort of everything I had going on at that particular moment in time. Yeah, and so I really like this idea because, and this kind of taps into something that I do as well. I don't have a, I have like a hybrid whiteboard corkboard, and so I'll do projects that are actually materializing on a on on a note card that I'll actually put on my corkboard, and then my whiteboard kind of becomes either yeah ideas I have or either notes I'm needing to write down re regarding the little things on there, and I'll have various steps in progress for all of IRB, data collection, I think manuscript writing, under review, and then revisions or whatever. So this is very similar, but Matt said this to me, he's got two columns. It's essentially the status it's in as of right now. And then he also has a column for authors and even an order for those. So I think this is kind of a great idea. Now, I'm sure for some people thinking about 11 ideas, seven in progress and four in review, that's, I mean, that's a lot, Matt. I mean. What do you think about that? Did this feel overwhelming doing all this at one time? A, a little bit. Um, candidly, this was the summer before I was going up for tenure. Yeah. So I, I have to think the volume was probably a bit higher uh, than it was in, in previous summers. But, um, you know, some of those projects that were in review had, had been in review for a while. Um, some of those ideas uh, have candidly never materialized uh, beyond, you know, an, an idea. Um, but yeah, it certainly is a lot going on. And I, I think I'm someone who's always had lots of different projects going on. Um, I like working with different people. Uh, that's something that I enjoy about what we get to do. So I, I take advantage of that. Um, but yeah, I'll, 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 you know, maybe share my, back when we had offices or when we were working in the office, my neighbor, Liz Delia and I often joke about the differences in our whiteboards. Uh, and Liz, whose research record, Liz's research record is, is phenomenal. She's a remarkable researcher. She does great work. Um, she and I approach research very differently. Um, I like to work with lots of different people. I have lots of different projects going on at once. She has done a lot more um, work by herself as a solo author, which I have so much respect for. Um, so certainly like the, the quantity of my whiteboard or how many ideas is on there is certainly a lot more. Um, than, than Liz would ever have, which I think has good moments and certainly bad moments. Yeah, I mean, just for an example, for people out there talking about how big Matt's network is on these authors, even just for his papers under review. So he had four papers in review at July or June 2019. I'm counting that there's eight different total authors, obviously, including Matt. So he has seven different collaborators, different unique collaborators within those four projects, not seven total people. There's even There's more than that, but seven different folks that he was working on within those papers. And that's just the in review. You go in, in progress, there's a whole bunch of other new people in there as well. And then even on some ideas, you can see that there's some people down there that are new that he doesn't have as well. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big network and different folks that you have to kind of keep tabs on. I'm glad you, you referred to that as, as you know, my network of authors. Um, I certainly do a lot of research with networks and I, I use networks to study um, to study different topics. So I think a lot about my network. Um, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, the power of networks and certainly the resources that you have access to through networks. And um, I love having sort of um, a broad network of co-authors. I like having a diverse um, network of co-authors in terms of methodological expertise, in terms of the institutions where they are, 
um, you know, where they are in their careers. I think we all hopefully have parts of the research process that we really enjoy. And for me, it's working with other people where I really enjoy what, what we do. Um, so, you know, I'm sort of looking at this list Matt, Matt is referring to, and, you know, I have a project, it's, it's now published in JSM with, with Thomas Baker at Georgia and uh, one of his PhD students, Hoy. Um, Thomas and I have never worked at the same institution. Um, I met him at NASM and we were having a NASM talk a couple of years ago and he sort of said something that, that stayed in my mind and a couple months later I emailed him and said, hey, I don't even know if you remember, but we joked about this idea and I thought a lot about it and I, I think it would be a really cool project. Are you interested? Um, and so that's something that, that I do somewhat often, I think. Uh, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but I've, I've never been afraid to, you know, initiate those conversations and, and at least try to see if, um, you know, what starts off as an idea can turn into a real project, if it can materialize. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think the, that's a good segue to talk about these in-progress papers, because I think these are going to be the ones that are really going to be intriguing on this topic, because you're in review papers, you had four of them, all been accepted. So that's great. Able to clear the deck and also to celebrate those wins. But your in-progress is great, because you have all kinds of variety on the status of what they are. So <laughs> Let's kind of walk through these, Matt, if you could, and kind of tell us a little bit about where each of these are for the audience. Sure. Um, so I'm laughing because uh, some of these in progress say, you know, in it's now in third review. One of them is, is you know, manuscript writing. Uh, one of them says in capital letters, epic fail, project abandoned. <laughs> um, and then one of them says, good question, not sure. Um, so, so those are probably not, you know, great pieces of advice. Um, well, no, and one, one says accepted too. So there's, we even got the accepted one down there too. So there's, you're right. You've got from accepted in deep review in writing, <laughs> no idea. And is no, no longer being pursued. <laughs> yeah. Pr epic fail uh, is what I, what I called that one. Uh, and that project wasn't an, an epic fail for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, actually, one, one of those articles um, was accepted this week. The one that said in third review was, was just accepted, which is exciting. Oh, nice. that, was a, that was a labor of love, uh, that phrase that we like to throw around. Um, but yeah, I, I think the sort of variety of, of updates says a lot about some of the pros and cons of trying to manage so many projects. And, you know, for our, for our listeners, when Matt asked me to do this, uh, this topic, one of my first thoughts was, I don't know that I'm very good at juggling so many projects um, because I have had some that fail and I've certainly had some that, that don't work out. So I think it's important to, to know that. And in that particular um, project, which was with uh, my colleague, Nicole Melton, um, and a former colleague of mine at Miami University, Rosemary Ward, um, the data we collected just really didn't work. Um, we had an idea and our data collection didn't go as well as, as planned. Our sample size probably wasn't big enough. And as we worked through that data, uh, it just really didn't want to cooperate. And I think maybe we could have gone back to the drawing board and, and started it over, but I don't think it was, it was an important enough project for, for any of the three of us, um, which is why it now says kind of project abandoned. <laughs> I'm picturing this like Oregon Trail had just been tossed aside along the the trail as other people will will see it 
<laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, and we sort of, you know, I'm sure I have an email chain somewhere of like, should we try this again? Should we do this? Should we do this? And I think we all sort of lost momentum. Um, and, you know, I think all of us have our, have, have enough other research projects and we didn't really put enough, we didn't have so much invested in that project that, that, you know, we could say this is not the one for us. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. Looking at each of these, I mean, how, how do you juggle all these projects at once? So we have one that's been abandoned, but there's still six other projects. We'll even cross off the other ones. We've accepted, you got two that are accepted. How do you juggle the others? Like, how do you work through which ones get prioritized? Which ones are being worked on by someone else? How do you communicate with your co-authors? Kind of all that. Yeah, I think it's important to talk with your co-authors when you start about what your goals are. You know, what journal you see this going to, uh, when you think it's going to happen, um, you know, sort of developing some kind of timeline. Um, something that I think about often, uh, Bob here said this pretty clearly a couple weeks ago. He, he won SMQ's advisor award and he sort of talked about how as a PhD advisor, your PhD students work should always come first. And he said, before you ever work on one of your own manuscripts, if you're an advisor, you should be returning your PhD students work. And um, Bob was really good about that when I was his student. Um, for those of you who don't know, he was my advisor at Texas, what feels like many years ago. Um, so <laughs> I, I try to keep that in mind. I think about who I'm writing with and how important these projects are to, to different authors. We're all at different stages of, of our careers. And candidly, I, I think if I'm on a project with three people who are all tenured and it's a fun project, but not, you know, maybe a major, major theoretical contribution. Sometimes it takes a little longer to get to it. Um, there's a couple projects on here um, with PhD students. And when I hear from them, I try to turn those around as, as quickly as I can. Um, and I try to really keep those going. So um, in terms of, you know, how I prioritize, some of it has to do with who I'm working with. Okay. Um, and I think others have to do with how excited, you know, the authors are and, and where our momentum is. Um, I, I think a little bit about momentum when it comes to group projects. You know, you, you just collected your data or you just ran your analysis and you're so excited about what it's saying. Let's, let's keep going, right? Let's use that momentum and, and, and keep going. Let's not, let's not pause at that point versus a, you know, a very slow project that sort of over time we're, we're going step by step. So I try, and I don't always succeed, but I try to never be the one that's holding up a project. I, I think that's really interesting about excitement. I mean, that could probably be tied into findings. Mm -hmm. I know you talked a little bit about your project that you guys decided this wasn't worth going forward. Obviously, that's the opposite, but I'm sure at times you go through and you get your data, and maybe it's even better than you expected, or maybe there's an epiphany on looking at, hey, maybe if we look at this, this, and this, it could really provide something even better. And so for you, that potentially helps prioritize projects? I think so. Um, you know, the, I tend to work on projects that I like doing and that I'm excited about. Um, and so if there is, you know, genuine enthusiasm among the co-authors, if one of your co-authors emails you or texts you and calls you and say, hey, can you believe that we found this finding or this person said that or, you know, this is what's coming up. Um, that's fun. And that makes it fun to work on. Uh, so I, I try to, 
to um, to use that excitement, to use that passion, to use that enthusiasm, uh, and and drive the group forward. Um, but that is one of the reasons why some of these projects, uh, you know, don't move as quickly as you would like, because you know, not all projects change the way you view. You know something not all projects make a major theoretical contribution in in your part of the world um, and sometimes I find those tend to be the projects that fall through the cracks for me yeah and to add into that I mean one co-author that I have it's a really good friend of mine we've done you know our admits of doing a lot of work Liz Taylor who's at Temple Temple has a pretty stringent list of journals that count towards tenure and promotion and that's can be true at other places, especially for merit. And I know for at times, if we find something that maybe isn't as juicy or that we think it has as good a potential to get into the type of journal that we're looking for, yeah, that's just gonna knock it down a priority. Or maybe we just decide it's just not, either we are gonna pursue it, but it's not gonna be as important as these others projects, or we just decide not to do it in general. Yeah, and I, I, I like that approach. Um, you know, and if you think about where you are in your career and how you need to prioritize your time, I think that's a great idea. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a good example. And every school, you know, has their own, their own journal ranking list, their own merit, um, systems, you know, the way that they do tenure and promotion. So I, th I think that's something uh, that co-authors need to be really clear about. Um, you know, I, I had a conversation this week with a PhD student at another school that I'm working with. And I sort of showed her, this is UMass's journal ranking. This is how we talk about tenure. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is, this is your article. So wherever you want to send this, whenever you want to work on this, you know, um, as long as it's within these parameters that I try to be clear about, that, that sounds good to me. Now, I think a big question I have here is with so many co-authors, I'm sure there's all kinds of conversation ahead of time on authorship lists. Is that something mm -hmm. you work on ahead of time? I mean, that's, for me, it's always been important to make sure everyone's on the same page about where in the pecking order this is so that everyone can also decide how much motivation on this project, but also to avoid any conflict later on. I mean, is that something that you kind of lay out early on? Yes. A um, couple things there. I think that was an issue I was more concerned about a few years ago. Um, I think as a PhD student, especially, you maybe hear horror stories of authorship order getting messed up or people, you know, being upset with authorship order. Um, I've never had, you know, an actual problem with that. Um, maybe that's because, you know, I've been lucky to work with great people. Maybe that's because we've always been upfront about it. Um, but I don't think I've ever had, you know, a single paper where the authorship order wasn't very clear and, and maybe set up from the beginning. Um, I think there are some strategies for that. I think when you're first writing a paper, you know, when you write out the title page, put the authors on it, you know, and put it in an order and, and maybe even make a casual comment of, does this work for everybody? Um, you know, I also think it's that I've, I've worked with really good people. I think we as a field have really good people working in it. Um, you know, I, th I think about my, my colleague at UMass, Nicole Melton, she and I are working on a paper together now that um, it was probably my research idea at the start. Um, 
And then we found some unexpected things and she really started driving the project. And I said to her a couple of weeks ago, you know, when we started this, it was going to be cats and Melton. I sort of think this is turning into a Melton and cats paper. Um, and she laughed and sort of waved me off and said, we'll figure it out, you know, when, when we get to the end. And I think that's a reflection of just working with good people uh, and, and being clear about your priorities uh, and open communication, certainly. No, I think that's awesome. I, I've definitely had projects where, like right now I have one with Calvin Knight, who's at Texas A&M, and we're starting a project and we've really bantered back and forth about who's first author and it's more of he thinks i'm first author mm. and i think he's first author <laughs> but we've kind of said like you know what let's let's just like we'll just keep working on this but when we get closer to the end we can actually decide who we think is uh who who we think should be first author and i also know that with some journals you can have a i forgot what the wording is but where there might be a uh someone that's put first but in there it says that there's equal contribution put by those authors mm -hmm. and that's an option as well i th i think that example you gave with calvin i mean what a great problem to have right when yeah. you want you want your teammate to get credit and your teammate wants you to get credit that's that's awesome um and i think that's a sign that you're working with people you should be working with and you're communicating the right way yeah and it's it is an awesome problem to have. And I think the big thing for me is always just setting the expectation. I don't want anyone to get third author when they thought maybe they were a strong second or where that you potentially have hurt mm -hmm. feelings. It's just more of like, hey, here's here's the author that I'm looking for, but then I also list, here's your responsibilities. Like, Matt, you're gonna be the second author, but you are gonna need to do a good chunk or most of the lit review. And I might have you pitch in a little bit to do some editorial or add some stuff into the discussion. But then that way, hopefully people can see where their authorship and contribution expectations are going to be and understand that those kind of align with who the second, first, third, whatever author is going to be for that project. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I'll mention here, I was lucky enough a few years ago um, to be part of a study about authorship. So with, with um, Adam Flieger, who's at Belmont and, and Matt Bowers, who's at Texas, we did a Delphi study about authorship practices and sport management mm. uh, that was published in Journal of Business Ethics. I know exactly which one you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was eye-opening. It was eye-opening for me um, to hear these other, you know, great scholars in sport management talk about authorship issues that, that they've encountered um, and how they sort of think about first, second, third, corresponding, what, whatever the authorship order is. And so I, I feel like, uh, I have a pretty good sense of how, um, not only how I think about authorship order, but how other people think about authorship order as well. So I, I think about that project a lot uh, as I begin new projects with people, um, you know, to really help drive or, or help be clear on what the authorship order will be. Yeah. No, I, if anyone hasn't read that paper, yeah, Matt gave all the details there. I would definitely check it out. It's a good... I don't know, like practical, I don't want to say practical please because that implies that there isn't a strong theoretical piece there, but I think it's really practical as a researcher to kind of read through that and understand some of the voices that are going on there within sport management. Yeah, I mean, I'm always happy to promote my own work. Um, and, and, you know, actually that project is an interesting one to bring up. Uh, Adam Flieger, who's the first author on that, uh, he was a PhD student at LSU when I was a master's student. 
so we sort of became friends then and, and have always kept in touch. That started as a pretty wild idea in his head. Um, and he sort of asked me, hey, I have this idea. What do you think about it? And he and I spent a lot of time working on it. And we started this Delphi study and um, we struggled with it. it. It was a hard data collection to make sense of. And Matt Bowers, who was at Texas when I was a PhD student, um, is, is a remarkable researcher, a wonderful thinker, and brings clarity um, in a way that, that very few people can. And so I, that was one where I actually said to Adam as we were struggling, hey, why don't we reach out to Matt Bowers and see if he wants to join us on this project? Um, so Matt actually sort of came in late as a third author in a study about authorship, uh, which, <laughs> which I think makes it a pretty funny, um, funny example, but one that worked out really well and something where that, that paper does not get published without uh, Matt's contribution there for sure. That is pretty cool. Now, thinking about when all these in progress, I mean, papers mm -hmm. come back at the same time. How, how, I feel like that can be daunting at times. You get a journal that gets you back and maybe it's good. Maybe it's mm -hmm. uh, like revise and resubmit or even further along, but then you get rejections. You have to figure out next journals. Like how do you handle that volume that comes in? Or even if it's a manuscript where one of your co-authors has done with their part and now it's your turn to get your part done. So like, how do you balance when you kind of have all these projects coming to a head at the same time? It's hard. Um, I think you have to be honest and, and you have to be open. Um, in, in terms of revisions, it's funny you, you bring that up. Um, this is something that Neff Walker and I joke about a lot. Uh, I love revising papers. Um, <laughs> I know some people, you know, complain endlessly about, about the revision process and I know it can be time consuming and frustrating, but for whatever reason, I've always found, I mean, genuine enjoyment in responding to reviewers and writing those letters to reviewers. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is something I learned as a PhD student, you know, from, from Bob or, or from Arlene Dixon, who is such a great mentor to me. Um, but when I write my letters, you know, responses to reviewers, I almost treat that as if that reviewer has become a co-author. Um, and I try to make it conversational and I write long responses to people. Um, and I, I enjoy that. Uh, I, th I think I'm maybe weird in that regard. But, you know, that's a part of the process where I know I tend to work quickly. Does it feel therapeutic? Is that, is that kind of the feeling you get from writing the, re the revisions and responding to the reviewers? I don't know that it feels therapeutic. Um, I feel like it's challenging. Um, and it's sort of, I don't know, it feels like going through a, a really hard, like, practice when, when, you know, so many of us played sports growing up. Like, you know, there was this, something I'm trying to accomplish, and it's not there yet, and let's put in the time now, and let, let's get it there. Um, so I, I feel like I derive a lot of satisfaction and, and to some extent enjoyment um, from that process. And typically when you submit something for a review, you, know, you, you think it's good. You're proud of what you wrote. You're proud of the argument you've crafted. You're proud of, you know, how you handled your, your data and you're proud of the contribution it's making. So then when a reviewer says, you know, this part doesn't make sense or, you know, have you thought about this or why did you say that? Um, I try to, to spin that to be a positive to say, well, there must be a better way for us to do this. Um, not all reviewer comments make me, you know, feel happy to respond to. Um, but I, I do enjoy that, that process. So 
in terms of handling, you know, when you get lots of them back, that's something that I, I typically like doing and I like taking the lead on. Gotcha. It's, I feel like reviews can be frustrating for me in the sense of it is, you have this, like using some language you use, you've created this labor of love you submitted and then obviously someone's judging that. But <laughs> it's one of those things, the initial reaction at times can be frustration or complete disagreement. But later on, after having a moment to kind of walk away, I definitely can reach like, okay, you know, I, I understand what they're saying. Um, or I know I've seen Bob talk about this on Twitter and I think this is a good point of if a reviewer saying is something is confusing, like they're right, like, or it's not written clearly enough, then they're right. Like you need to like, while it's your voice, it's easier for you to think that it makes sense. And so those can make sense. Sometimes you just end up getting stuck that the reviewer believes a, and you believe B and maybe it's something that you're not willing to give ground on. And those obviously can be the biggest challenges with those reviews. But obviously I think those come few and far between. I think sometimes when I first read reviewer comments, I may feel like I don't want to move, but at the end, I just know that, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of middle ground here that we can come to an agreement on. Yeah. Everyone has their own strategies. Um, I think when I was a PhD student, Bob here always said, you know, read your review once and then like put it away for, I don't remember if it was the weekend or the week, but have some distance between it. Um, I just try to remind myself that most of my reviews come back from sport management. You know, colleagues in NASM are the ones reviewing most of the papers I write. And I tend to think that the overwhelming majority of our field are genuinely good people. And I think they want to help and, you know, they want to see good research. And so I always try to imagine that, you know, that reviewers is, is trying to help. And if there's something that doesn't make sense to them, hopefully they're helping me make it more clear or they're, they're showing me something I might've missed. So I try to think about it that way. Um, and, you know, we're rambling about reviews here, but uh, it's sort of an example of when we get, when I get reviews back with, with other co-authors, that's always something I sort of say, I like doing this. Can I take the lead here? Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, as I think about who I write with, um, it's often people that have a skill set that's, that's different than mine. Um, so I try to really bring, you know, that maybe tool to the table uh, that that's a part that I like to do. Yeah. I mean, you're going to make a lot of friends if you're willing to pick up the, the revision part. <laughs> I like friends. Friends are good to have. Um, and, you know, if, if that's something that, that people aren't interested, you know, people don't like, um, it, it's something that I've always enjoyed doing for whatever reason. Now, with this big network, I mean, is it often, how often do you check in on a project to see, do you set timelines ahead of time? Like, if you're doing a project, we're looking at Chicago Bulls data. Like, is that something where you say, hey, you know, I've got the data the goal is that we want to try to get this submitted within six months. Is that something then when you hand it off to someone else that maybe you'll check in periodically to see how progress is doing? I think it depends. Um, I'm not a particularly, um, I don't want to say I'm not organized. I don't know that that's fair, but I'm not someone who writes down every date on their calendar and make sure I hit, I hit benchmarks. I just, I wish I worked that way. I, I, I just don't. Um, I tend to think in each sort of group of authors I work with, I try to always have one person who's maybe thinking about, you know, keeping us, um, 
on task and keeping us moving. I, I think about Marlene Dixon, who I've been lucky enough to work with. Um, she is phenomenal at that. And so I sort of know when I'm working with her, if I kind of forget about dates or I forget to keep it moving, I know she's going to stay on top of it. And I'll get that reminder of her. Um, you know, some people are the opposite. I'll, I'll lovingly say that my, my dear colleague, Nicole Melton, uh, is, is not as wonderful about deadlines. Neither am I. So I'm not picking on Nicole. I think she and I are similar on that. But when it's Nicole and I working on a paper, I need to be a little more conscious of making sure we're moving forward because that's not a strong skill I don't, I don't really think of either of us. So it depends on the group. And I think, again, that's a, a tool or a skill that I hope one author sort of, I try to make sure one author is thinking about. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, this kind of goes into kind of lessons learned because you just kind of outlined one lesson learned is making sure that one person is responsible to make sure that things are moving along at a, at a reasonable pace. But I mean, what are the lessons you learned? I wrote down a couple of like, have you reached a point where you know what, what's the max amount of projects you can juggle actively um, or best way or recommendations you have for those? But I mean, what are your lessons learned from learning to juggle these various projects at the same time? <sighs> Yeah, one is to be careful. Um, you know, it, it is, it's easy to, to talk to people and say, oh, I'd, you know, we should do a project on that. We should do that. You know, Matt, you and I both have this interest. Let's do a project. Um, so I think you have to be a little careful uh, with, you know, starting that initial conversation if you're not really willing to, to do it. Um, so I, you know, back when NASM was in person or conferences were in person, I feel like you would always see people sitting in little groups during coffee time or, you know, during the socials and you'd hear people talking about, Oh, we should do a project on that. Or after someone presents, someone goes up to them and Oh, I'd love to work with you at some point. I don't know what percentage of those ideas actually, you know, come to fruition, probably not many. Um, so I try to be careful about, you know, adding on more um, to, to my plate. To some extent, it's, it's a balance between adding more projects and, and how excited you are about the project. Um, so if it's something that, you know, I'm just, that sounds like a great idea. We should really do that. I would love to do that. I will probably always add that to my plate, no matter how much I have to do. Mm. Um, that's just the part of this, this job, this world that I enjoy doing. Um, it's the projects that you're sort of like, eh, that would be kind of interesting and you seem like a nice person and I'd like to work with you. Those are the projects where I think get you in trouble. Um, when you add too many of those and then you don't have sort of the intrinsic motivation to, to keep going on it. Um, or at least they get me in trouble. Um, I, sh I should say. Yeah. I really like that idea. If you run into a great project, you, you probably can find time for that because there's, yeah, this recently, I feel like I just got through a bunch of stuff and now it was thinking about new projects and there are certain ideas that it's like, you know, I, I just need to find time for this because I really like this idea and it doesn't even have to necessarily be that it's going to end up in some place like a JSM or whatever, but it just might be, you know, I really have been wanting to do something like this and your idea or this idea I have is going to be able to tap into that possibility. Definitely. Um, and I think an idea that you're passionate about 
while it's more on your plate, you know, at least for me, it sort of provides energy and enthusiasm. Um, and that's what helps me keep going. And this is a pretty nerdy thing to say, but I can't tell you how many times I've been grading papers and I'll tell myself, you know, all right, grade 10 more papers and then you, um, you know, student papers, grade 10 more student papers and then you can work on this research project and then you can open up this data set. Um, so to some extent, you know, the excitement of those projects sort of helps me stay moving forward. Nice. Awesome. Well, so kind of wrap this up, Matt, we're going to have our one fun question here. And so I was going to ask you, like, and this one might take a second to think about, but favorite publication that's been written by someone else in the sport management field. Now that could be favorite paper that you've read to someone else that you thought really was just really well written, or maybe it's on a topic of interest, or maybe it's just something that you've used quite a, a bunch on papers, like you've cited it a bunch as a paper, or maybe it's something as a doc student that really kind of opened your mind to think about research in a different way. But I mean, you can take this in any different way you want, but yeah, just favorite paper you've seen written by someone else in the field. It's a great question. Um, I think there are a lot of great papers in our fields. Um, I enjoy reading, you know, a lot of the work that, that our colleagues do. Um, you know, I enjoy reading the work that is so far outside of what I do that I don't know anything about it. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's fresh and it's, it's fun to read. I think that the two papers that came to my mind quickly, um, probably the first is uh, uh, Dan Locke and Dan Funk wrote the multi in-group identity framework, the MIIF. I think it's an SMR. Um, that, okay. was a, that was a paper that I read and just thought to myself, like one, this is amazing. I love this. This is so good. And two, it was like, I, this is everything I've wanted to say in such a better way than I could have said it. Um, <laughs> so, so I sort of felt myself reading along with it. Like, yeah, I've thought that before, but not that, you know, uh, um, not that well written out or not that well thought out, I should say. So it was, it was really fun for me. I sort of remember the first time I read it, it really did, um, say quite eloquently a lot of the thoughts I had been thinking about in my head. So I loved reading that. Uh, the other paper that comes to mind, um, uh, I have to look up the, the year of this one now because I don't remember. Sorry, I'm, I'm Google scholaring. Um, it was uh, Fairley and, and Tyler wrote a JSM paper in 2012, bringing baseball to the big screen that was about baseball fans watching, I think, playoff games in movie theaters and the community that it built mm. among people. And I, I just thought that was such a fascinating idea. Um, one, I had never heard of people doing that, so I loved that. But thinking about all of these maybe other spaces where sport fans interact and where people consume sport. And a lot of the early work I did as a PhD student was, was with tailgating as a setting. And it was really this movie theater idea that helped me think about, you know, we should be studying tailgating and watch parties um, and, and people at bars and these other spaces, right? Not just limiting ourselves to thinking about either, you know, in the stadium um, or maybe on, on the couch from a, a consumption standpoint. So I, I probably cite that paper um, 
maybe in every paper I've ever written. I would be, I'd be curious <laughs> if I've done it. I'd be curious if it's in every single paper or just almost all of them. Uh, and, and now David Tyler uh, is now a colleague of mine at UMass. Um, and so I, I bring up that paper with him. I, I just love that, that idea, right? Who thought we should study this setting? Um, and I think it's a really innovative way to push um, sport marketing research forward. No, oh, that's awesome. Those are, those are two papers I've definitely heard of. Obviously, they're out, outside of my research area, so I haven't dove into them. But the Basel one, I've, I've definitely casually read that one, so that's, that's definitely really cool. But yeah, Matt, I want to finish, kind of wrap this up by saying thanks for joining us on this topic. I think this is going to be really important, especially for doc students out there as you're, as I kind of preempted this conversation about learning. You take on the first project and the second project and the third project. And these projects take a long time to go from idea conception to actually publish and not having to do anything regarding that data set anymore. And after a while, it can seem daunting that there's an, always an adding and a never unloading. Mm-hmm. And it becomes just more and more tedious at times or frustrating to kind of go from that. So I really appreciate you kind of walking us through the process for you of having to take these ideas and actually fin- and running them to a finished product. Yeah. Th- thanks for having me. Um, and if I could throw one more thing at, at, you know, especially young scholars thinking about this topic, uh, one is don't be afraid to reach out to other people in sport management. Uh, I think we still are a relatively small, small field. Um, and, you know, if you have ideas and, and you want to work with other people, chances are there's someone in your network who knows just about everyone um, in this field. So, so don't ever hesitate to reach out. And then the, the last thing, like you mentioned, this can be a long process. And I've always found it to be hard to know when to celebrate in the research process, right? Is it when your IRB is approved? Sometimes that's the hardest step, right? Should we celebrate then? Uh, is it when your data is collected? Is it when your model works? Is it when you submit for review? When you get a reject resubmit? When you get minor revisions, right? When do you actually take the time to celebrate and be proud of what you've done? And I find it so much more enjoyable to have that celebration moment with, you know, with friends, with co-authors. Um, so, you know, write with people that you enjoy working with, write with people who are going to push you, write with people who are going to challenge you. Um, and I, I think you'll enjoy this process a lot more. Yeah, for sure. It's, and that same thought I've had is when to celebrate, because even when you get an acceptance, that's not when your paper comes out, which right. also is like, so should I celebrate just when the paper is, is out there? But then if you're lucky enough to get something at JSM or SMR, SMQ, they have a queue. And so your paper isn't even published right away. And yeah, this becomes a, when do I do this type thing? And so to me, it's more of, if there's doubt, celebrate each time. <laughs> yeah. And make sure you celebrate, right? Not that we just, yeah, that was fine. That got accepted, but I have three more going on now. Take the time to celebrate. Cause it's, it's, it's a great achievement and it's something that, um, you know, no matter how many papers you, you publish, uh, you should always appreciate all of them. They're all a labor of love to some extent. They're all a part of you on paper. Um, so I, I, I hope we all celebrate all of our successes. Yes. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well said. But yeah, again, thanks, Matt, for joining us on this. And for everybody listening in, thanks for joining us on this episode. I hope you found this as fruitful as we did but hopefully you'll join us for our next episode that'll be upcoming soon.